the only thing I remember is the verdict. On the 23rd of October, 1970, 10-year-old Sylvia Kelly sat in court, waiting to hear her father's name, Captain James Kelly. And I remember when the first verdict was announced, I turned to the lady beside me and I said to her, that means that daddy will be found innocent. And she turned around and she whispered to me and she said, not necessarily. And I remember waiting to hear his name and holding my breath until they denounced he wasn't guilty. And then, excuse me. Reporter Frank Kilfeather was in the court too at the moment when the four men were declared innocent. All the he supported them at the back of the court burst into applause and started singing rebel songs. Immediately was and they shout and roar and then they ran up the centre of the court and up to the jury and started shaking hands with the jury and clapping them on the back and the whole lot Captain Kelly's sister Teresa was there in the middle of the melee in the court too Kelly I went straight over to the jury and shook hands with them Did he? He did, yes and that was when Teresa Kelly's brother, Captain Jim Kelly, uttered prophetic words. He said, you know, it's only starting now, you know, he said. <laughs> this is episode nine, the final episode of Gunplot. And this episode is all about what happened since. Since that exact moment over 50 years ago, when the verdicts of the arms trial were read out in court. We spilled out into the foyer of the four courts. 10-year-old Sylvia Kelly was swept along in the tide of people celebrating the verdict. And then out into the public area. Everybody was shouting and screaming and people were crying. And Someone lifted me up to protect me from the crowd. It probably was my father's brother, Vincent. I had long hair at the time and I caught in the button of someone's coat and I remember crying out but nobody could hear me because the noise was so overwhelming. It was just a lovely feeling of joy and excitement. Those involved spoke to reporters outside the court. And they have vindicated all those who have been smeared and blackguarded by the powers that be. Former Minister Neil Blaney. Who ran this trial not merely as a prosecution but as the consul said inside as a persecution. Businessman Albert Likes. I feel a hell of a lot better than five weeks ago. I can tell you that. My bottom is sore from sitting on them hard seats. No, no, no. Former Irish Army Intelligence Officer Captain James Kelly. It's pretty hard to describe. Exhilarated, I suppose, is the word. I, I don't know exactly, but excited and uh, glad that it has turned out the way it has and that I've got a not guilty verdict. And Belfast Republican John Kelly. I think Mr Wood put it very well when he said that this trial was a pantomime, and that's what we believe. But this has been our vindication. 
One of the men who'd been on trial wasn't in the crush outside the courts, and that was Charles High. As befits a senior politician who had just hit a minor speed bump in his career, he was headed for the much more formal setting of a press conference. Reporter Frank Kilfeather was at it. First question asked was, uh, how does it feel, Mr Hawhey, to be a free man? Oh, wonderful, wonderful, great, Gramtilai, yes, everything fine. And I asked the second question and I said, uh, Mr Hawhey, will, will you now be retiring from politics? And he glared at me. And he said, certainly not, certainly not. And it showed you how little I knew about politics. For having been dragged through the courts, having been sacked as minister, having been, you know... Dreadful time. As an ordinary human being, you'd say, oh, enough is enough. And that's why I asked the question. But I didn't understand the mentality of a real politician. They'll go through brick walls, they'll fight. And at his press conference, Hawhey did square up for a fight. With the Taoiseach and leader of the Irish government, Jack Lynch, the man who was leader of Hawhey's political party, Fianna Fáil. Well, I think there's some dissatisfaction with his leadership at the moment. And I think that uh, those who are responsible for the debacle have no alternative now but to take the honourable course which is open to them. When he had said those who are responsible, everyone in the press conference and everyone listening at home knew exactly who he was talking about. His boss, Taoiseach Jack Lynch. Jack Lynch wasn't anywhere nearby though. He was in New York at a United Nations meeting but he was keeping a close eye on events back home. After he had thrown down this gauntlet at the feet of Jack Lynch, Charles Hawhey headed out to his house in Concealy, the mansion on 200 acres he had bought the year before, where he threw a large victory party. Charles Hawhey's son, Sean, was an eight-year-old boy at the time, and he has very few memories of the arms crisis. My only clear recollection is the night that he was acquitted. There was a big party in the house and there was a lot of people there. There were a lot of people there, a cross-section of the upper echelons of Irish public life, senior members of the judiciary, the Gardaí and the civil service. It was said that anyone who was anybody in public life was there. Captain Kelly and his wife Sheila were there, as their daughter Jackie remembers. And I remember my mother was sick all the next day, having drunk too much. That in itself was a novelty. You can just imagine how Jackie's mother Sheila felt then. It was the end of six months of desperate worrying. The arms trials were over. Her husband Jim wasn't going to jail. Family life could get back to normal. Another of Sheila and Jim's daughters, Sylvia. I recall the telegrams of congratulations. Too many, it seemed to count. The euphoria was overwhelming. But for some of those who were celebrating, particularly the men who stood trial, this moment of euphoria at the party, that's just what it was, a moment. Because the day after the verdict, Taoiseach Jack Lynch delivered this blow. In a radio interview down a bad phone line from New York, he said... Nobody can deny that there was an attempt to import arms illegally. Nobody can deny that there was this attempt to import arms illegally. There's that word that was pointed out to us in episode 8, illegal. 
The men were found not guilty, so there was no illegal attempt to import arms. Jack Lynch was a barrister before he was a politician. He knew full well that the court had found that there was nothing illegal going on, but still he said it. There was this attempt to import arms illegally. The government didn't accept the verdict of the trial. Sylvia Kelly, Captain Kelly's daughter. So here was the Taoiseach, the leader of the country, telling his supporters that the jury had got it wrong. And in doing that, he did three things. He was taking Hahian in what was an impromptu leadership contest. He undermined the judicial process and the jury's part in it. And, perhaps worse for those involved and their families, he contributed to the no-smoke-without-fire view of their innocence. Let's deal with the leadership challenge first. Jack Lynch was on the flight back to Dublin. The court case against his challenger, Charles Hahi, had been lost. Hahi had called Lynch out. Those who are responsible have no alternative now but to take the honourable course which is open to them. Government must exist on complete mutual trust and confidence. Listening to those words on the morning radio news back home in Ireland, Fianna Fáil politicians knew they had a choice to make. Would they back the incumbent Taoiseach, Jack Lynch, or would they plump for the challenger, Charles Hahi? And there was one very clear way to show their allegiance. Jack Lynch was about to fly back from New York. His arrival in Dublin airport was to be a public event for the cameras. If a Fianna Fáil politician supported him as Taoiseach, they would go out to the airport and welcome him back. If they supported Charles Hahi, they would stay away. All eyes were on the tarmac in Dublin airport that October morning in 1970. Charles Hahi's, of course, but also the other leadership contender and alleged gun plotter, the former Minister for Agriculture, Neil Blaney. He had been driving the arms importation plan and yet he managed to avoid court and he still managed to proclaim his innocence. When Charles Hahi called Jack Lynch out to do the honourable thing, he didn't name him. But Neil Blaney did not hold back in his criticism of Lynch. Mr Lynch tonight also appalled me by ignoring the court's decision brought in by a jury and delivered by the judge, uh, that of clearing the men before it of the charges laid against them by the government. Neil Blaney still had his eye on Jack Lynch's job and also on the tarmac at Dublin Airport. So, Dublin Airport. What kind of welcome would Lynch get and from whom? How many Fianna Fáil politicians would turn up for the camera? That was the question that must have been in Jack Lynch's mind as his plane taxied to a stop in front of the terminal. And they did come out to welcome him back. There on the tarmac was a stage-managed crowd of the party faithful. The front bench of the cabinet who were available, positioned right behind Jack Lynch, for the television cameras to see. Reporter Sean Boyne was at the airport. Lynch began his press conference and there was a solid phalanx of the parliamentary party behind him. And they included some of the old guys from the revolutionary period. The gathering of leading party politicians at the airport was sending a very clear message to Hahi and Blaney that they were on the outside. Lynch got a good reception and no question of him resigning. Reaching a crossroads. Is Fianna Fáil at the crossroads? Well, it's not at the crossroads. It's a, there's, there's a, 
a fire road on the way, that we, but we, we're not going to go up it, we're going to go straight on the main road. That sound said it all. The party backed Lynch over Hockey and Blaney. The men he sacked back in May might have been winners in the courts of law, but in the corridors of party power, they were losers. Charles Hockey and Neil Blaney now each had a choice to make. Lick their wounds and bide their time, or keep on challenging Jack Lynch. Charlie Hockey retreated and didn't mount a challenge at that particular period in time. Irish Times journalist Harry McGee. And then he decided that the only way he could do it was to swallow hard, wouldn't be to oppose Jack Lynch anymore, and to accept the punishment that was meted out to him by the party. Neil Blaney was not in the mood to accept any kind of Fianna Fáil punishment. He remained loudly critical of Jack Lynch and about the North. The real issue and my real difference with the government is on their lack of policy on the six counties, their complete lack of knowing where they're going. According to the historian Brian Hanley, this marked the end of Blaney's national political career. Blaney in the 1960s had real ambitions to be Taoiseach. Blaney, you know, right from the beginning of, of his career was dynamic and saw himself as the leader of Fianna Fáil. So ultimately the arms trial and particularly his decision then to retreat in many ways to Donegal ends his ambitions and ultimately he lost out, I think, in the long term. There was one politician that might at one point have been regarded as a victor in the arms trial. Minister for Defence Jim Gibbons, who was a witness for the prosecution for the state. After Neil Blaney had been sacked as Minister for Agriculture, Jim Gibbons was given his job, a promotion to a more senior ministry. Jim Gibbons was put into the witness box on behalf of the government. There were other politicians who could, in theory, have been called to support what Minister Gibbons was saying. But that didn't happen. His son Martin felt that that was unfair. We certainly as a family felt that he was left carrying the can because when it went to trial, we always had the impression that my father was kind of thrown to the wolves. So, even though Jim Gibbons had got a promotion to a better ministry, he was associated with the failure of the prosecution and he became isolated within the governing party. His daughter Elizabeth. If a situation gets out of control, as in happened with the arms trial situation, people retreat. It was an absolutely horrific experience. The support he had was with family returning home and very, very close friends. After that now, it was thin on the ground. That was Jim Gibbons on the losing side of the trial. On the winning side, the men had their lives changed forever even having to move their families. The beginning of that trial was the change of the path of our lives. This is Brona Mulholland, John Kelly's daughter. John Kelly had become involved in the arms crisis when he was part of the Citizens' Defence Committee. Despite his not guilty verdict, he couldn't go home. It wouldn't have been possible for Daddy to have come back to the North again because he was patent as a gun runner. You know, and what was he doing? He was trying to run guns to go against the state of the North. So therefore, he could have come across a charge of treason, which would have meant, you know, a very long jail term. So I suppose it, it was, I suppose, a sentence in many ways because it certainly changed the path of, of our lives. It just meant that a new life had to be forged out and, and, and it turned out it was in, in Dublin. But Dublin and the Republic of Ireland could be an unwelcoming place for Brona Kelly and people who thought like her father. 
Brona and the other children of the arms crisis were in the middle of a decades-long argument in Irish society between the gun and the ballot box. Ever since the foundation of the state, there was a tussle between those who wanted British rule off the island of Ireland by force and those who wanted this achieved by agreement. For much of the history of the state, that argument was confined to political sloganeering and the singing of rebel songs. However, when violence broke out in the North, it became more real. Especially as the violence in the North was often brought south and threatened peace here, as in the case of the killing of Gartha Fallon by the Republican Splinter Group. And at times like that, the word Republican became a dirty word for many people down south and a byword for supporting armed violence. Much of the society, and particularly the political elite, identified people as Republican or anti-Republican. The men associated with the arms importation plan were therefore labelled Republican. And they and their families were pressured and punished as a result. And one of the ways pressure was applied related to money. Just after the arms trial, everyone was curious about the £100,000 that had been given to Charles Hawhey to provide relief for Northerners in distress. But the only taxpayer is asking, sir. Taoiseach Jack Lynch was asked about it at a press conference. Has somebody got 10000 20000 30000 of the taxpayers' money now? Who and how do we get it back? Well, again... If, if that money has been misappropriated, if there are means to get it back, certainly we get, we'll go after it and use whatever legal means are open, open to us to do so. The missing money would give licence to what many people saw as a third trial. The Public Accounts Committee investigation into how that £100,000 had been spent. It convened in late 1970 and went on for several months. From the public's point of view, it didn't have the glitz and glam of the courtroom drama that had gone on a few months before. And in reality, much of the detail in it would have gone over their heads. But what the Parliamentary Committee investigation did do was add to the cloud of suspicion that hung over all the men involved. Colonel Heffern's son, Colm. After the two trials, the Public Accounts Committee went in, all guns blazing, to try and destroy the reputations of the major players. The committee's report in 1972 did not lay any fault at the door of Taoiseach Jack Lynch, it did criticise Colonel Heffern, Captain James Kelly and Minister Jim Gibbons. And the money? Well, attempts were made to recoup the money paid to arms dealer Otto Schluter. The armours didn't come through and Schluter kept the money. Sean Boyne, crime journalist. And afterwards the Irish government tried to sue him in the courts in Hamburg, but it didn't succeed, so Schluter kept the guns and the money. It's estimated that Schluter hung on to between £20,000 and £30,000 of Irish taxpayers' money, around €400,000 in today's money. If Otto Schluter came out of the arms crisis a richer man, the men at the centre of it did not, even if people thought they did. Certainly when I was growing up, it was always, you've got money hidden, you've got IRA money hidden. Sheila Kelly, Captain Kelly's daughter. How come, you know, that you're, all your kids have gone to college, you're obviously getting money from somewhere? And the son of Colonel Michael Heffern, Tom. I was in Bolton Street College and um, I remember my classmates slagging me and asking me, what did my dad do with the 100,000? Again, money was an instrument used to retry and punish these men and their families. Pension and jobs. After the arms trial, Captain Kelly didn't receive his army pension. It had been withheld. Captain Kelly's wife, Sheila, had to conduct a one-woman picket outside Dáil Éireann. 
I remember her coming home tired from having walked round and round and round outside Dolair and with her placard and she would come in and she would put the placard under the um, stairs for safekeeping until the following day when she would do it again. Captain Kelly's pension was eventually reinstated but he was 41 years old with six young children. Two trials and one Oireachtas investigation couldn't reveal all the secrets of the arms crisis and now the men involved had to face the most important court of all the Court of Public Opinion. The year after the trial, Captain Kelly wrote a book called Orders for the Captain. He probably didn't know it then, but it would be the start of a long journey of campaigning that would consume the rest of his life. His daughter Sylvia remembers him writing the book. I remember him sitting at his little brother typewriter and he would type through the night and you would hear him when you were in bed, you'd hear him clacking away on the typewriter. And in the morning he'd sometimes still be there still typing when you get up to go to school. But once he wrote it, no one was prepared to print or publish it. So he had to print the book himself, publish the book himself and distribute the book himself. So he um, had a little Renault 4L at the time and he would just put the books into the back of that and he'd go around the country distributing them. And um, some booksellers wouldn't take them, some large booksellers wouldn't take them because of who he was. But the book did well, but he never printed or published enough of them because he just didn't have the means or the money to do so. But the first um, 2000 sold like nearly overnight. Colonel Michael Heffron, Captain Kelly's senior officer, wasn't on trial. But according to his son, Colm, it sometimes felt as if he had been. The perception was there that my father was actually, like Captain Kelly, one of the accused. That is how, because he was he he was so much in the trial, because he got cocky off, because he got blainy off with his evidence that oh he must be one of them. One of them meant someone to be avoided in 1970s Ireland, as Colonel Heffron recalled for his son Tom. He talked about how he was walking down the street, and he heard a sudden movement in front of him, and he just looked up and he saw one of his former colleagues quickly moving across the road to avoid him. And he had a number of those kinds of experiences. Shunnings, you know, it was better not to be seen near him, that he was toxic. These people were pilloried and their reputations were viciously and vexatiously damaged forever. People were really, really scared. Like he was never invited back to the mess, which would have been normal. It affected my father all the way through until he died. Despite nobody being found guilty in the arms trial, the families involved could not shake the air of suspicion that hung over their fathers and themselves. It all had very real financial consequences. Captain James Kelly. I couldn't get a job here in Dublin. And actually I was on the dole for six months because I hadn't a hip to support my family and I looked for jobs from the road sweeper up. I wouldn't get them because anything, that, even the business people, are that I was wrong, that the gov- it'd be bad news for the government and so on. People would say to him, it's not worth our job to employ you. You know, they would talk about government contracts would be taken away from them if they employed him. An example of this happened to Colonel Heffron when he retired, according to his son, Tom. He had a job lined up with a publisher that he would resurrect books that had gone out of print that he thought were worth putting into print. I remember the day that the book publisher called to the house and left and he was very crestfallen and he told me that, that he wasn't going to get that job. And the reason being that 
the publisher had a lot of government contracts for school books and things like that and just couldn't afford to have him on his books. And according to Sylvia Kelly, daughter of Captain Kelly, their family suffered severely because of these attitudes. Financially, it was dire. (laughs) There was no getting over it. Following the trial, we depended very much on the kindness of others. We had an uncle who gave my father a loan. I remember one day a man came to the house and I was skipping outside with my friend and he handed me an envelope and in the envelope was £100. And we didn't know who he was, but he would never have known just how important that money was to us. Captain Kelly was 41 on an army pension with six children. But even his co-accused, the successful businessman Albert Likes, was vulnerable. He also suffered financially even though he had been acquitted. After the trial, Albert Likes lost many of his government contracts and his business was hit badly. This is John Kelly talking about him years later. His whole life was ruined, his whole business was ruined, you know, subsequently to that. Died from a heart attack, you know. But Albert, again, was one of the very tragic people, you know, who felt that he was acting totally within government policy, who innocently was involved through a government minister. That government minister was, as you recall, the Donegal man, Neil Blaney. A year after the arms trials, Neil Blaney's career was taking a downward trajectory. In November 1971, when there was a motion of confidence in the government and Jim Gibbons, the Minister for Defence at the time of the arms trial, Blaney would not vote for it. If Jim Gibbons was telling the truth at all stages, in the court and outside of it, then I and others were lying. And I'm not prepared to admit by voting for the government, even for the best motives, that I'm a liar and that Jim Gibbons is telling the truth. Well, the Taoiseach put the government on the line in this motion. Do you feel that your future with Fianna Fáil is now lost? If Fianna Fáil decides that they don't want me in future, uh, this is something they will decide, not I. And if that happens, I will claim, and I think rightfully, that Fianna Fáil has left me that I have not left Fianna Fáil. And the following year, Fianna Fáil did indeed leave Neil Blaney. He was expelled from the party. In Neil Blaney's home, his children experienced a phenomenon that the other children of the arms crisis remember too, and that was that their phones were tapped by the Garda Special Branch. Neil Blaney's son, Eamon. We used to chat to the Special Branch, but they'd never chat back. But you always knew by the clicks on the phone that they were listening. Always listening. Always listening. And that went on for years afterwards, like for years after. So, you know, there was code words for everybody. There was different names. We sell them many of Umster, many of Umster, just to fucking wind them up. And we'd say, oh, how are you, lads? You must be getting bored at this stage, are you? Because at this stage, like we're getting to the stage now where, you know, there's boyfriends and girlfriends and things. And there's only one phone in the house. So they had to listen to an awful lot of rubbish. <laughs> And while the teenage Eamon Blaney may have had fun with the phone tapping, he and the other children of the arms crisis became aware that, because of their fathers, they were also seen as potential enemies of the state. We were marked, let's say, as being like troublemakers. We're the people who caused this. We're the people who sided with the bad people. We were vilified socially a lot of the time. Even up to this day, I mean, two years ago, I think it was, I know somebody in a club 
their name was Blaney, and they were asked, oh, you're one of the Blaney's then, do you know? And, oh no, I'm not one of those Blaney's. Not the gun runners. 50 years ago. But the stigma still stuck. When I was growing up, it was always, you know, we know what you did and we know, you know, what you're part of and you're part of something sinister. I lived in California for a year and I was sitting at a barbecue by a pool as you do in California and someone said, oh, here she is, the gun runner's daughter. So, I mean, everywhere you went, you could never escape it. I went to visit a friend and her father came home. His daughter said, this is Colm Heffern. And he walked straight up to me and within a foot of my face, he looked me in the eye and he said, I spat in your father's face. Now, I don't think he did, but the fact that he felt that he could say that, that was a body blow. That, that, that was, I said, is that what people think? You know? My father was cast as a maverick officer who had switched allegiance from the state. And so I think this gave the loyalist paramilitaries the justification they required to target us. And maybe then that's why the death threats started. What form did they take or could you, could you describe them for me? Yeah, I'll try. There were a lot of threats. A lot of threats came and the, and the threats kept coming for, I suppose, about 10 years, really from when the trial started well into the 80s. But the um, first one I remember came in the Morning Post and it was written on a postcard. And so on one side there was this kind of scenic view of Northern Ireland and then on the other side was the threat and it was addressed to my father. And I remember bringing it up to him. He was in bed and I remember handing it to him. And I remember him turning around and saying to me, it won't happen. It'll never happen if it's written down. You know, don't worry about this. It won't happen if it's written down. But I don't think he was as reassured because every parcel after that that came to the house, he treated as a potential bomb. He would take everything out into the garden and tell us to stay in the house. And he would... Um, open up whatever the parcel was and, you know, make sure that no damage came to us. Those threats to Captain Kelly came from north of the border, a place from which the other Kelly, Belfast Republican John Kelly, was forced to flee for fear he'd be arrested by the authorities there. He moved south to Dublin with his wife and baby daughter Brona, but just three years after the arms trials, John Kelly was back in court again. He was charged and convicted with membership of the IRA. This is John Kelly's daughter, Brona. So when they hadn't got him one way, they got him another way. They had to wait a year or two, but they did get him and he was sentenced six months in Mount Joy. Again, it's through the eyes of the children involved that you get a starker sense of what was happening with the families. I must have been swinging on the gate and say what was a four, five years of age and... and I said, who are you? And my name is Bruna Kelly. And where, where's your mum or daddy at? Oh, Jack Lynch put my daddy in jail. Jack Lynch himself was to lose his job as Taoiseach a few years later. And ironically, it was a party row over the north of Ireland, which would ultimately bring him down. 
The man who took his job in a masterful behind-the-scenes coup was the man Jack Lynch had sacked in May 1970. The man who, after he had been humiliated by the large welcome for Jack Lynch at Dublin Airport, had licked his wounds and retreated back into the party ranks. In December 1979, he finally got his revenge on Lynch for his treatment back in 1970. The new Taoiseach is likely to be Mr Charles J. Hawhey by a narrow margin of about six votes. And he is just, I think, coming in the door now. And a burst of applause. I have been assured by Jack Lynch, the Taoiseach, that all his vast reservoir of experience will be totally at my disposal in my new position. By anyone's standards, this was an incredible achievement. And in part, he had managed to do this, not by shouting about being innocent, but by keeping very quiet. You wouldn't talk to him about the arms trial. Charles Hawhey's son, Sean, himself a Fianna Fáil politician. You knew that this was something terrible and awful that happened in our family, that happened to him, that it was very sensitive and you just knew not to talk about it. You knew that it was painful. For my own part, I was a bit afraid about it. I knew that this terrible thing had happened. I didn't know the full details of it. And it's only in more recent years with the publication of new papers and new books and so forth that I've been able to get my head around it and, and deal with it. So it was a painful memory, the whole thing, to be honest with you. And not only did he not talk to his family about it, but Charles Hawhey had no intention of talking to journalists about the arms crisis either. Bad news for those who Charles Hawhey saw as his enemies. And one of those was Jim Gibbons. In the next general election, he lost his seat. According to his daughter, Elizabeth Gibbons, this was engineered. The intimidation, I can't, it was absolutely appalling, the levels that they went to get him out of his seat. But he was still a member of Fianna Fáil. And 10 years after the arms trial, it was still a party divided. When members of the party moved against Charles Hawhey in 1982, Jim Gibbons was there to oppose him. He was leaving the doll and he was going to his car. Jim Gibbons' son, Martin. And at that time, there always seems to be a lot of these undesirables, let's say, hanging around Leinster House, you know. And as he was uh, leaving the doll, he was attacked. And he was attacked by some of Charlie's angels, you know. But the following day, which is when my father got the heart attack. After that, Jim Gibbons suffered a number of heart attacks and strokes. He died in 1997, aged 73. All the men publicly involved in the arms crisis in Ireland are dead. Albert Likes died in 1978, aged 61. Peter Berry also died in 1978, aged 69. Colonel Michael Heffron died in 1985, aged 75. 
Neil Blaney died in 1995, aged 73. Jack Lynch died in 1999, aged 82. Charles Hockey died in 2006, aged 80. John Kelly died in 2007, aged 71. The Hamburg arms dealer Otto Schluter, he has no death notice listed that we can find, which would mean that if he's still alive, he's over 100 years old. A German listener told us there is an Otto Schluter listed in the Hamburg phone book. Um, Herr Schluter, ich bin Journalistin aus Irland. Is he the arms dealer or Waffenhandler? Um, sind Sie ehemaliger Waffenhändler aus Hamburg? Nein. 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 It turns out not to be the man. Pretty straightforward. You ask a question, you get an answer. That hasn't happened much in trying to tell the story of the arms crisis. As we've said, many of those who were involved died without revealing what exactly they did at the time, leaving their children and others to fill in the gaps. This can be frustrating. The children naturally take sides. But so also do some writers and academics pumping up the reputation of one person while smearing the character of another and leaving you wondering what actually happened and who's telling the truth. Records are missing or have been altered. We have tapes from the trial, as you know, which are very welcome. And actually, we will be making all of those tapes available in four appendix episodes after this one. This is the final episode of the main part of the series and we offer no conclusions. You have to draw your own. But we do have an ending that returns us to the man we began the whole series with. The army officer who went on his holidays to Derry, where he witnessed the Battle of the Bogside in 1969. Captain James Kelly. He died in 2003, aged 73. Since the arms trial in 1970, for the last 30 years of his life, he was preoccupied with the need for an apology from the state for the way he was treated. Even on his deathbed, this came before everything else. His daughter, Sheila. He was expecting that there would be some exoneration and some public apology to him. And all he would talk about was that. So you, you couldn't have that kind of meaningful deathbed conversation of, I love you, you love me. You know, you couldn't, there was no room for that because all he could say to was, have they come yet, have they come yet? And he was waiting for this apology to come because he really believed that the state was going to give him some level of apology and that's all he wanted. The last day when he was dying and Suzanne was holding his hand and we knew he was sort of slipping away and he kept saying, has it come yet? Has it come yet? And Suzanne said, it has, but, but it hadn't. And he died very shortly after that. When Captain Kelly died, there was another Fianna Fáil Taoiseach in power, successor to Jack Lynch and Charles Hockey, and he issued a statement. Tonight, Taoiseach Bertie Ahern said that he believed that at all times Captain Kelly acted on what he believed were the proper orders of his superiors, and he had never found any reason to doubt the captain's integrity. Joe O'Brien, RTE News. After he died, Captain Kelly's wife, Sheila, who died six years later, made her own comment on the affair with her choice of inscription on Captain Kelly's headstone. She had picked a quote from Machiavelli, Put not your trust in princes.
If you want to explore the story of the arms crisis further, we've put a list of books on our website, rte.ie forward slash gunplot. Gunplot was written, recorded and produced by Ronan Kelly and myself, Nicolene Greer. The phone call to Germany was made by Colette Kinsella. Production assistance from Liam O'Brien and the Documentary and One team. Additional assistance from Sean Regalaforig and Roisin O'Dee. Archive material has come from the RTE radio and TV archives. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also titled Gunplot and available on the RTE player. You've been listening to Gunplot, an RTE Documentary and One production. Yeah.